0: You're listening to New Books in American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Lane, a host of the channel. As someone who grew up watching All in the Family and Sanford and Son, I've long been familiar with Norman Lear and his work. What I didn't know as a young child sitting cross-legged in front of the TV set in the 1970s was how prominent a political figure Lear was at the time. In his new book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, Politics television, and popular culture in the 1970s and beyond, Professor L. Benjamin Ralski makes a case for understanding Lear as a key protagonist in the culture wars of the late 20th century. As a religious liberal, Lear was committed to engaging politics on explicitly moral grounds in defense of what he saw as the public interest. Other players in the culture wars, television networks, Hollywood, the FCC, televangelists, and Ronald Reagan himself, had their own interpretations of what constituted the public interest. As a result, Rolsky's interdisciplinary analysis concludes that primetime television itself became a contested political space and the site of some of the definitive cultural clashes of our fractious times. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Benjamin Rolsky about his 2019 book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, Politics, Television, and Popular Culture in the 1970s and Beyond, published by Columbia University Press in 2019. Dr. Rolsky, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I can't wait to have a conversation with you.
0: Me as well. So before we talk about the book, can you tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Sure. I'm um, currently uh, teaching part-time at uh, Rutgers University in New Jersey and also at uh, Monmouth University in New Jersey. Um, I split my time between history and anthropology departments, religion departments, in this semester, uh, political science, actually, where I'm teaching a course on religion and politics, which has been really, really great so far. Um, And in the free time, I'm, um, or not, I'm um, raising a little three-year-old with my beautiful wife, and I think she has a little Valentine's Day party later, so I'm super excited about that, and can't wait to go to that,
0: too. Oh, that sounds like good fun. Um, I always love a kid Valentine's Day party. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So tell me, where did the idea for this book come from?
1: So, if for whatever reason, um, when I was growing up, I was raised uh, sort of by my parents on 1970s television. Uh, I think they grew up certainly with it and left a mark. Uh, so, I was always kind of surrounded by shows like Mary Tyler Moore and, and MASH and All in the Family. And and eventually, um, I just started putting some pieces together. I went off to graduate school, did various sorts of sort of programs and degrees. And, and once I got to my uh, program at Drew, I I started to um, see sort of a bigger picture to maybe some of this individual programming. Uh, and then I was always um, drawn to sort of TV and media in general. And it kind of came together when I found out a bit more about uh, Norman Lear's nonprofit activism. Um, I knew of his TV, I knew of his kind of cultural work, but I didn't really know about his activism and his nonprofit work. And so once I found out that um, a little bit of a history of People for the American Way and where it comes from and who's involved and who the advisory boards were and just the wonderful detail and research. I ended up putting the pieces together and making an argument that Lear is representative of, you know, some sort of movement that people are calling, at least at, at the time maybe, and then certainly today, something called the religious left. Um, I, stumbled upon, I stumbled upon some books as well uh, written in the early 80s that Uh, talked about the sort of troubling relationship between religion and politics that was emerging in Reagan's America, you know, oftentimes written by more liberal progressive uh, people either connected to universities or congregations or churches. Um, So the Shrivers, uh, who oversaw Union Theological Seminary at different times, wrote a number of pieces in the 80s uh, that used Norman Lear uh, as an exemplar, as someone who was giving some leadership to mainline Protestantism to try and figure out uh, what kind of America had been Sort of made with the uh, Reagan presidency, and uh, in many ways, that's how the book starts—is kind of the conversation between those two men. Um, so it started biographically, and then over time, I started putting things together, and I found some material in the archive and was able to pull it off. And I'm, you know, very excited about it.
0: That's great. And so you, you mentioned that you found some material in the archives. What, what were some of the most exciting materials that you found, and, and what sort of archives were you looking in?
1: Right. So this book is, so an example of a sort of traditional or not so traditional archive um, is say the Paley Center uh, in New York. And so I think part of this work is to kind of push or encourage the idea of, you know, what can a primary source look like? What can an archive look like? And so for me, uh, the Paley Center is, very much a, a, a repository, a location, a storage space where I can go and, and look at sitcoms of various sorts of uh, different primetime shows that were on at the time, variety shows of which Lear certainly did his own. Uh, so for me, you know, having DVDs of all in the family is itself some sort of archive uh, that you can carry around with you. You can, not many things play DVDs anymore, I suppose. But uh, if you do have something like that, I think it is a bit of an archive in that sense. And Just stumbling upon the letters that that start the book, I was really taken by those. And and in particular, um, there's a text that I believe Peggy Shriver wrote uh, that had a Lear uh, endorsement, I think, on the very back of it. Or in addition to using him as a subject, he was also part of the commentary that was educating those around him as to what possible actions could be taken over or taken over against an ascendant conservatism that was tearing asunder things like religion and politics and church and state, at least in the eyes of Lear, which is why he creates People for the American Way. And even stumbling upon and knowing about the variety show uh, that People for the American Way produced and being able to visit the archives of people at Berkeley's Bancroft Library in, in California. Um, I did some work in that archive as well. And uh, so the notion of archives kind of fluid in the sense it's a traditional one where you have you know folders and desks and tables. And then it's also the idea of um, television and media also functioning as, as an archive that historians and scholars of religion and culture can utilize however they'd like.
0: Well, and I'm excited later to talk with you a little bit about that variety show because your book is the first place I encountered that, whereas mm-hmm. most of Lear's shows I, I was familiar with, either from, either from my childhood or just sort of being in the field of American studies, hearing mm-hmm. about them and scholarship on them. So mm-hmm. I'm excited to talk about those later. But first, can I just ask you, I, I like to get a sense of, of how authors go about writing their books. Um, so what did your writing process for the book look like? Um, mm-hmm. How do you write? Where do you write on paper, computer, coffee shops, kitchen tables? What's it look like for you?
1: I think, yeah, it's a wonderful question. I think it kind of depends on what I'm doing or the type of composition that I'm trying to compose or create or produce. Um, so the book is a revised version of my dissertation. So a lot of the composition, a lot of the research for that was, you know, sort of done in in either some sort of hovel, <laughs> some sort of graduate housing, um, some sort of shared space. Um, I like to work by myself or listen to some music or maybe converse with someone else. So I would say most of the book was written sort of while I was in my program. And then once I graduated, defended, uh, it was written in different places at different times. Um, so the book itself, I guess is more traditional in the sense of sort of alone and in a space uh, where you can maybe think or listen to something. Uh, but if it's something different, say if you know the three-year-old is down for a nap or something and I wanna put a small piece together, maybe for an op-ed or something shorter, um, I'll sometimes use my phone, um, my smartphone, and and pull up um, a Google Doc or something and take a look at something that I was editing before. A uh, number of jobs that I've had, I've, I've had to sort of use the phone in that way uh, to be able to work on something while maybe doing something else. Uh, so it kind of varies, um, you know, the time that's allowed, the type of composition that I'm doing. Uh, but at least for the book itself, it was really mostly composed in my in my program, um, in spaces in the library spaces or, um, I like public spaces, but not as much. Uh, but then I, I also like to have something kind of saved and on the phone, either to take notes with, or to kind of work on as thoughts come to me. Um, I tend to be uh, somewhat extemporaneous, uh, although I write a lot of, um, outlines out and kind of plan, but I also like to have things just kind of happen. Uh, so my process is also sort of extemporaneously, um, inspired or, or maybe motivated and I try and, uh, depending on what I'm doing, you know, get into the right space that would make that uh, best possible.
0: Well, clearly that approach worked for you. It's such an interesting book. And and to turn and talk about the book itself, as you mentioned, when you discussed the archives, you open the book with a, um, a discussion of letters. You talk about a fascinating exchange between Norman Lear and Ronald Reagan. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the exchange and, and how you first learned of it?
1: yeah i think I think that was something that I came upon It was just a basic kind of search just to see what Norman had written, what he had what he had produced. Uh, I was able to interview him a couple times uh, that's also part of the book in, in maybe a smaller way uh, so I was able to uh, learn about the context of that uh, actually just recently I stumbled upon um, some additional letters uh, he actually they the two of them exchanged a number of letters uh, over time and I believe I don't remember exactly how I stumbled upon it. It's in Harper's, so it's a pretty widespread kind of larger vantage or venue. Uh, but I also knew that he had written things himself, and so I started looking around and poking around, and and something that was published in a in a book that Columbia edited on journalism back in the early eighties. He Norman Lear wrote something called "Liberty and Its Responsibilities." Uh, so I was trying to pool any kind of formal technical writing. That he had done over the years and his website is actually I forgot to mention that his websites a really great resource uh, he he collects his own work and organizes his own work oftentimes couched in the simple sentence of a life in the spirit which is something that I was actually planning on using for a title at one point and then it kind of went through different iterations different conversations uh, so the letter the letters exchanged to me spoke to a and speak to a wonderful sort of microcosm of the different renderings of religion and politics and how the relationship is understood sort of vastly differently depending on the two people talking and and so when I broke that conversation down it came down to really two prepositions are we talking about freedom sort of for religion or are we talking about freedom from religion and to me those are two places that speak very much to where they were at the time and still very much where we are today with the somewhat. <laughs> Um, unpredictable application of religious freedom and what it makes possible. Uh, so I believe, like I said, I can't remember exactly how I stumbled upon it. I think I was pulling together material on, on him and his site has so many different pieces that he's collected over the years. And I thought it'd be a wonderful way of, of introducing people to this, this, to this career. Uh, because for Lear, you know, writing to the president was something that he was raised to do. Part of his sort of civic vision of the of the nation, of the of the country, uh, he tells stories of his relatives, you know, writing letters to the president, Dear Mr. President. So that kind of uh, investment or belief in sort of civic engagement of actually holding uh, public representatives accountable for something. Um And so I thought it'd be a wonderful way to sort of get into a larger story
0: well, and I, I really like you mentioned larger story, right? I, I like that the book is about Lear, and it's also, using Lear as a lens to see deeper into mm-hmm. a certain cultural moment. Um, mm-hmm. and, and your work examines the the realms of what you call spiritual politics. Now, How do you define that term?
1: Yeah, so that's something that I'm still sort of playing around with. So most of the time, most studies of this period, 60s and 70s, we're talking about the rise of the Christian right. We're talking about the rise of the religious right. We're talking about Pentecostals, Charismatics, Evangelicals of various sorts, conservative, liberal, progressive, otherwise... Um, You know, in the one moment we're talking Jim Wallace and another moment we're talking Jerry Falwell or Pat Robertson. So the term is a turn of phrase that's meant to kind of capture the tenor, say, of that time period of cultural contestation, of spiritual contestation. So you think of conservative Protestantism and the word spirit, you're thinking Pentecostal, you're thinking something, um, a spirit descending or a fire descending, something along those lines. For me, the term... uh, also describes a certain understanding of the public square and the relationship between religion and politics or how religion is supposed to apply or not to public life and to the public sphere. Uh, So spiritual politics of, to broaden it out, of religious liberalism is really Lear's sort of civil religious philosophy or understanding of how individuals are supposed to relate to one another. Uh, And also bringing in another reference just to the variety show, Lear was uh, inspired by a mid century justice or judge, I believe, sorry, named uh, Learned Hand. And he includes Hand in his variety show and this recitation that, that's, that talks about doing something in the spirit of. So, oftentimes for progressives, we're talking about the spirit of liberty, the spirit of justice, the spirit of fairness. So, to me, I wanted to bring attention to a phrase that is giving a more, not a more textured, but a textured kind of progressive reading. Of spiritual and of spirit, so it's less about a, so it's more about a sense of fair play, less about the actual spirit, the spirit that say takes over or that descends, more of a Pentecostal, say charismatic vocabulary, and more in the idea of you know how do we create a civic space that is accessible to as many people as possible without becoming too exclusionary, and so for me I was trying to capture that that sensibility, something being in the spirit of. As guiding a lot of what Lear and others are doing at the time.
0: Great, you write about, you know, this conflict between Lear and others. It's a particular kind of conflict. And, and I'm going to quote you here because I really like the way you put it. So you say it's the one fought, quote, over culture and the federal policies that were supposed to arbitrate the proper and the improper, to differentiate the tasteful from the tasteless, and most important, to protect the civil from those who did not know how to be so. This was nothing short of a battle over cultural power. So can you tell us a bit more about how and when this conflict emerged and who its key players were?
1: Sure. So the conflict, I suppose, would be what most, say, social scientists, social scientists, or scholars of religion or historians, cultural studies would call the culture wars. Uh, So this book is a direct sort of address of that literature, uh, social scientific and, and otherwise. Uh, so uh, my thoughts and my sort of thinking are still ongoing, you know, certainly when it comes to this. But to me, uh, this period, say from the 60s onwards, depending on who you read, whether it's, excuse me, someone like uh, Andrew Hartman or uh, James Davison Hunter, a sociologist or a historian, you know, most of the time it starts in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, most of the time it's, it's some sort of reactionary or explanation that locates some sort of reactionary sort of conservative mobilization over against a countercultural one that was maybe largely progressive. Uh, I am still thinking about this, but to me, I think the sort of counterintuitive results of declaring that the personal was the political, to me, I think we're still living in the kind of counterintuitive fallout of that. Uh, because to me, if in one moment it was a declaration that you know what takes place in these spaces is important, it's political, it's significant, it matters, uh, at the same time, If you make those spaces part of politics, you now make politics almost intractable because now we're arguing over who you're sleeping with, who you want to be with, who you love, where you can go, what you can do. So certainly, you know, questions of foreign policy or domestic economic policy, GDP, those sorts of things didn't go away. But what scholars talk about in this period is a recalibration of American political life around the quote unquote social issue. Now, whether that was sort of a conservative manifestation or invention, or a liberal, progressive one, I'm still sort of teasing that out. Uh, The social issues was, you know, something along the lines of uh, sexuality or race or gender or religion. So anything from Second Amendment rights or First Amendment rights to anti-abortion movements to gay marriage to Roe v. Wade to equal rights. Uh, So to me, it does have to do something with taste, something with the tasteful and the tasteless, just because. Uh, and cultural studies certainly helps with this. I use a lot of Raymond Williams for that. Uh, and to me, you have to talk about this during the culture wars and during this period because there's a lot that's, there's a lot of class that's built into this that you don't necessarily recognize. Uh, but a great example of this would be, you know, the rise, quote unquote, of televangelism and the electronic church. These turns of phrase are not, turns of phrase are not uh, innocent. They're not lacking of connotation. They're not lacking of of, of stereotype and, And cultural baggage. Uh, If anything, people like Lear and Martin Marty and others in the main line were were very not only confused about televangelism, but had something against it in terms of class. Uh, They would poke fun of it. They would make fun of the fact that, you know, these aren't real congregations. You don't actually have any churches. You know, your congregation is fictitious. It's virtual. It's over the airwaves and largely insignificant, which is obviously completely off, you know, off Because if anyone was being reached in the 70s, it was probably conservative people of faith, not necessarily progressive people of faith. Um, The early 70s had the Social Declaration of of Social Concern, evangelical concern, authored by progressive evangelicals. But we rarely hear about that because it's drowned out by the conservative activism that makes someone like Ronald Reagan possible. Um, So for me, it's helpful to add that kind of taste, class dimension to larger cultural uh, conflicts and confrontations, uh, just because I see... Some in some progressive writing and thought, some of that condescension uh, that can be traced back to scopes, traced back to how Archie Bunker's made fun of or satirized. Uh, so for me, it's culture wars is the topic, and then the civil from the, from the uncivil. If civil religion means anything, it's a form of you know, religion, however you do define it, that's been defined or that's been categorized as civil, as regulated, as recognizable under the First Amendment. So for me, these distinctions seemed uh, particularly important when I was putting this all together.
0: And I think it's really interesting the way you show that, you know, Lear sees some forms of religion and and their extension into the public sphere as, as laudable and others as mockable, apparently, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about as a religious liberal, what was Lear's understanding of the appropriate relationship or what he saw as the appropriate relationship between religion, American politics and spirituality?
1: Yeah, and that's really what I try to address sort of consistently throughout the text using various material and cultural resources. So regardless of whether you're looking at All in the Family or whether you fast forward 10 years and you're looking at I Love Liberty, his variety show, theoretically you're going to get almost the same type of kind of philosophical vision in the sense that if we start with All in the Family or maybe even simpler um, using someone like you know Robert Bella's definition from the late 60s, Lear, more or less, was a sort of tri-faith American who uh, fought in World War II and was very supportive of the sort of Protestant Catholic Jew idea. Um, he, at the same time, talking a little bit about, about Reagan and Lear, he had a certain understanding that religion was bounded. You know, like you were saying, there are certain manifestations, certain expressions that are somewhat appropriate, and then those that are, that are not. And in many ways, that's what People for the American Way was invented for. Uh, because Lear was concerned that uh, these televangelists were basically compromising the First Amendment, they're compromising uh, First Amendment freedoms, they're breaking tax laws. Uh, So he decided to examine that, or at least try to address that uh, hypocrisy in his his writings, in his official sort of public writings, in his speeches throughout the 70s and throughout the 80s. He was committed to a civil religious vision that understood conservative religiosity as somewhat of a dicey, as a dicey inhabitant uh, of the public square, because he grew up listening to the diatribes of Father Charles Coughlin uh, in the 20s and 30s, and hearing how anti-Semitic it was, and how virulent he was against FDR and the New Deal. So he was shaped by these experiences growing up in New Haven, listening to the quotas that sort of shaped Jewish entrance into places like Yale. Uh, so he had he had an understanding of sort of his Judaism and religion as coming out of discriminatory instances or maybe abrasive, more abrasive uh, examples of religious intolerance. Um, so in the 70s, I believe one of the presidents at the Southern Baptist Convention said something like, God does not hear the prayer of a Jew. And so for him, he he fought tooth and nail to protect his own practice as a Jewish person or just as an American citizen, his own practice to make on the family, which he had to defend against standards and practices, is his his vision of, you know, this Archie Bunker character is really destined for the dustbin of history. Archie is not meant to survive. And I think that's part of the odd sort of legacy, the ambivalent legacy, ambivalent legacy of his programming is that Archie hasn't gone away and we still really haven't addressed why he hasn't gone away and why he's still so predominant in our public life. So for me, with Reagan, for Lear, it's a freedom from. So it's a very negative freedom. It's not a freedom for, to, a positive freedom to practice. It's a freedom from. So as long as your practice doesn't discriminate or doesn't infringe on mine, then we're more or less okay, understood in sort of civil religious term, civil religious terms. If there is is encroachment, then things like People for the American Way come in and they observe. And in many ways, People for the American Way is a, was a form of right watch uh, before right watch was really invented. And I believe right watch is is a product of People for the American Way. Um, so it's, a very, it's an understanding that requires surveillance of taking a look at who's doing what in the public sphere and ultimately coming down to that line between for and from.
0: Well, and I think that's really interesting because Lear is, in some regards surveilling what's going on on the right. But he's also, um, he's not just a critic, right? He's creatively producing his own television programs. Mm-hmm. And and these are shows I was raised on, right? All in the Family, Maud, Sanford and Son. Mm-hmm. Um, and you describe these as some of the first examples of relevance programming, that is television with a purpose. And I, I would love for you to talk a bit about what this new sort of programming looked like and how it was received at the time.
1: Yeah, that's a wonderful question. So for Lear, and this is all, you know, most of the answers are sort of refracted through his understanding and then sort of my commentary and reading of it. You know, for him, he looks at what was on in the 50s and 60s, whether it's, say, The Rifleman or Leave it to Beaver or The Andy Griffith Show or uh, Beverly Hillbillies, which was, I think, the most watched show into the 1960s. So that's always an interesting uh, topic to bring up, right, just because, you know, to what extent does TV reflect what's going on when it's happening or as it's happening or not? So I believe that show was the most watched, you know, in the midst of 68, in the midst of assassinations and and Kent State and all these different things. So for him, Lear looks across this landscape, which was called A Wasteland, uh, I believe by a TV executive or something I believe in the 50s and 60s and so he sees TV as more than just a box of flashing lights. Uh, for him programming had to have a purpose or had to have or for him uh, I would call a civic a civic purpose. So relevance programming is a uh, industry sort of approach to a type of programming that is meaning to address what's happening literally as the show is broadcast. And so in Lear's case he made it a point to during the table reads or during the just meeting production meetings for all in the family, he made sure to have all of his uh, writers read countless newspapers, countless magazines to see what was happening, to see what the, to what the titles or what the um, main stories were, what the, what breaking stories were. And so Lear took great pride uh, in the fact that he could do an episode, say, on hypertension in the black community and then have a bunch of people go out and actually check themselves and see what was going on. Uh, so I believe one scholar, I can't remember the book, uh, talks about on the family and relevant programming as a type of sort of electronic classroom. So if the right is, you know, using something called the electronic church, quote unquote, then perhaps progressives like Lear and others like Mr. Rogers, that, which I've written a little bit about, you know, how they used popular culture to communicate, disseminate, and envision a broader uh, sort of idea of how society was supposed to operate and people were supposed to interact. And so Lear used satire or decided to use satire and all in the family to make a point about bigotry, about racism, about discrimination. Uh, one of the episodes is literally, I mean, you actually look at the episode list and it's almost like a syllabus. That's why I'm so taken by a lot of these programs at the time is that you could you could pick almost any episode. And there's one on Women's Lib where, you know, Gloria confronts her mom, um, Archie's wife. And they have this really difficult conversation that I know a number of women went through uh, and experienced themselves uh, during this time period. And Edith didn't really know what to say. And Gloria was so upset at, at, at Edith's apparent neutering or just lack of a voice within the marriage, within the relationship Um, So it was really a type of programming that you saw with um, All in the Family, but also MASH and also Mary Tyler Moore, uh, Larry Gelbart of MASH and Grant Tinker of Mary. They looked to Lear for to sort of set the standard to sort of follow in his wake. You know, he set the the table and you had Larry come through with MASH, which was really a commentary on Vietnam, but it was about Korea. And then you had Mary, who uh, episodes would bring up things like uh, about birth control and and the mother saying uh, something back to Mary and the father about a pill, and both of them saying, you know, I will take it. So it was really type of, uh, a type of program that was trying to incorporate what was going on at the time uh, into the show on behalf of a larger kind of meshe- message, civic kind of message. And with All in the Family, it was uh, bigotry, discrimination, racism, don't really have any places in this society, and we're going to show you a picture of someone who's kind of fading out but to question, but to a large extent, has that happened? And so that's what relevance programming was trying to do: was to try to make TV speak to what was happening at the time.
0: Well, and, and you argue that that relevance programming is is one of the reasons that primetime television itself became this contested political space during this era. Um, but it, and it's not just the people creating shows, but also you discuss television networks and Hollywood, the federal government, all of these different groups that were interested in defining and protecting what they Mm -hmm. saw as the public interest. Mm -hmm. So how did these conflicts play out and how did that affect Lear and his programming?
1: Well, yeah, that was something that I didn't necessarily expect. Uh, So there's a chapter where I go into the history of this idea of the public interest, which I didn't really know much about. Uh, It involves the history of the FCC. It involves really the first time that the radio waves begin to become regulated by the invention of something like the FCC. And what's, you know, so great, I guess, narrative, narratively speaking was, at least when writing something like this, was that, you know, someone like Father Coughlin was someone who the FCC and those making the decisions made a lot of the rules to keep off of the airwaves. Uh, So in many ways, there's a straight line in the name of the public interest because of the way the public interest was defined. And I don't remember exactly. I'd I'd have to look, but any number of definitions of the public interest starting in the twenties and thirties include a built in notion of, for lack of a better word, religion or lack of a better word, morality. Um, So built into the public interest is this idea of kind of religious formation. Uh, I would, to be more specific, maybe sort of mainline, formation, sort of a civil religious formation of, you know, religion, quote unquote, that's not too abrasive, that's not too controversial, but speaks to the whole person. Uh, So the public interest became a really important leverage point and kind of juggernaut in a lot of ways that Lear used to sort of surveil and to regulate or to keep out those who he didn't necessarily um, really have much to or have much in um, agreement with. And he also, uh, to sort of bring up a a previous example, he um, or the networks in Hollywood and um, decided to try and get this, uh, something called the family viewing hour to try and apply this thing called the family viewing hour to primetime television. And it was an attempt of the networks to try and get rid of some abrasive um, material, maybe some violence that they thought was maybe disturbing. Uh, But then it ended up basically kicking all the family off to a different slot. And Lear decided to couch this as a form of censorship because he defends his programming. And Gelbart and others define their own programming too as being programming couched in this thing called the public interest. And so he used that to not only kind of fight this policy that networks tried to do in the name of the First Amendment, and then he also used it to... Not only protect his own work, but also to defend something like the fact that People for the American Way, uh, the variety show that Lear puts on in the early in the early eighties, uh, it's you know supposedly bipartisan, it's supposedly this or that, but it's also couched in the public interest as well to say that it is universally sort of um, engageable or accessible to those who are seeing it. But we know that. In many instances, it was not. Uh, And the the public interest had certain suppositions built into it, certain assumptions built into it. And so Lear ends up using it to kind of protect himself. But then others like Falwell will call it out and they'll say, you know, it's not people for the American way, it's people for Norman Lear's way. And I always thought that was an interesting sort of way of couching it. And so the public interest is not only a um, concept that is very important uh, in media and politics and religion, Uh, but certainly in defending just culture and its its value. And Lear did that um, almost to perfection.
0: Well, and, you know, if Lear and the FCC represent two corners in the culture wars, as you Mm -hmm. mentioned, televangelists are really another. So how did televangelists get into the fray? And why was Lear such an ideal target for them?
1: Yeah, so about... Halfway through the 70s, the literature says we also start hearing about conservative Protestantism in various forms. We start hearing about a quote-unquote religious right or a Christian right. And they're assembling and they're organizing kind of regardless of Lear, uh, regardless of all of this. Uh, What happens, though, as someone like Jerry Falwell becomes more prevalent and he becomes more vocal and something like the moral majority comes into formation, uh, in addition to Lear simply knowing of these people and also watching these people, uh, the media at the time began to report on these forces or these people as a duo. So oftentimes, Lear and Falwell would be reported on in the same story. And they also knew of each other. Uh, in many ways, Lear, in the sort of topic of surveillance, you know, he was he was watching instances and examples of televangelist appeal um, on, on television. And in many ways, one of the interesting stories that comes out of this book is that one night or one day or afternoon, Lear is watching this type of programming and he hears, I believe, Jimmy Swagger uh, ask his congregation to pray for the removal of a Supreme Court justice. And upon hearing this, Lear Was beside himself. He thought that that was just such a fundamental kind of violation of everything that he defended and everything he held true. Uh, So televangelists were on his horizon. They were on his radar. He wrote about them uh, in the Peace, Liberty, and and Its Responsibilities. He warns those who are listening you know, these are not your country bumpkins from scopes. You know, these are not people coming out of the proverbial woodwork. These are people with computers. These are people with suits. These are people with nonprofit organizations. These are people with political action committees, which are really taking off in the mid to late 70s during this time period. Uh, So it's coming from Lear's side, and it's also coming from Falwell's side, because at one point, Falwell basically comes out and says, and this is, you know, surprising for people who are familiar a little bit, that Lear was the number one enemy of the family in America. I have that verbatim from someone like Falwell. So it came from both sides, and also the media uh, was contributing to it as well, whether it's the New York Times or um, Chicago, uh, something in Chicago or Washington Post or op-eds or anything. Uh, they were seen eventually to be together. and the way that you know, culture wars were taking off at the time, the more combative, the better. So even the, porting, the reporting at the time represented a kind of cultural a tenor of cultural conflict. You know, it's one talking head against another talking head not unlike we have um, in many ways today. So they're both going at each other, they're both aware at each other, and they're not necessarily aware of how they're being reported on together. So it's kind of happening simultaneously.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. And it it makes me think about, right, Murphy Brown gets designated Mm. this public enemy, but it sounds like Norman Lear was Murphy Brown before Murphy Brown was, right? This identification of, I mean, he's not a television character, but that that the images he's putting on television are seen as and discussed as this direct threat, um, on the good of the people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have a number of uh, letters to the editor and kind of op-eds that, I mean, a lot of people were really upset over the episodes that he did on mod where he basically focused on Maud getting an abortion. Uh, he didn't tell anyone about it. No one really knew about it. It was, I think broadcast over the summer, Uh, so it was, um, you never necessarily knew with him, you know, what he was going to do. He kind of liked giving, uh, the sort of suits as it were, sort of a hard time going back to standards and practices. So yeah, it's all getting caught up over the screen and it's all being played out over the screen. And even people like, you know, if we are familiar, like people like Ben Stein even get in on it. I mean, I'm young enough to remember him hosting a show on comedy central, about winning money or something, but you go back to the seventies and he's writing critiques of liberal progressive activism and Norman Lear in particular. So I just was so surprised at the different critiques and takes and where they're coming from and the very places that they're coming from, which just enriched uh, everything that much more, I think.
0: Well, and it's interesting how those debates have in some ways taken on a life of their own. I I was a women's studies minor in college in the nineties, and I've, Actually, never seen the the abortion episode of Maud, but I have read about it dozens of times oh, wow. um, in in different texts, and so you know it, it's something that really this debate, even when you weren't even talking about Norman Lear and televangelists anymore, the the debate sort of um, had a resonance clearly that that carried on. Well, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about, you know, as you write, Lear's political work clearly wasn't restricted to just the television programming that he put out and the critiques he offered of other forms of programming. But his nonprofit, um, which you've mentioned, People for the American Way, it's an mm-hmm. example of what interfaith activism can look like.
1: Mm-hmm. And so I thought
0: perhaps we could stop and you could tell us a little bit about that organization, its mission, and and how effective was it?
1: Yeah, so I'm um, still in communication with them. Um, trying to maybe pull something together. They're still very much everything that they were uh, and have been and always will be, you know, to a certain extent. It's an organization that's designed around sort of First Amendment protections, uh, what's taught in the classroom. So textbooks are really, really, really important to people for the American way. And also um, the relationship between religion and politics. I think uh, what's been both the sort of positive and negative is um, of something, like the activism of something like, People of the American Way is that they have no problem publishing pamphlets upon pamphlets, telling people how the relationship should be executed. You know, telling people what the relationship should be between religion and politics, and so they have countless, countless uh, books over the years, countless pamphlets, countless um, moments of activism and organizing. Uh, for me and Lear, he um, he was going to do a movie. Actually, surprise, surprise, he was going to write a movie that sort of critiqued the electronic church and televangelists. And, and instead, he saw Jimmy Swaggart or heard Jimmy Swaggart say something about removing a Supreme Court justice. And so he decided to go in a different direction. <laughs> and instead of a movie that takes forever, a very long time, even though he had the ears of people like Robin Williams and Richard Pryor, which would have been a you know hell of a movie probably, he decided to go with a series of PSAs. Uh, that were, uh, that took advantage of his connections in Hollywood. So they're kind of funny, a little bit corny today. But uh, a lot of the ads were just over basic things like, how do you like your eggs? You know, what music do you like to listen to? Uh, And so you'd watch this PSA about music, and it would have Goli Han or Muhammad Ali or something like that. And the conclusion of the PSA would be, you know, the freedom to disagree. That's the American way. And so that's how it sort of couched itself. And the main PSA, uh, which I'm still kind of wrestling with or thinking about for a second, text featured a forklift driving, hard hat wearing individual, like someone like Archie, and he's talking about how pastors or television preachers are telling him uh, what kind of Christian he is based on what he thinks politically. And so, if anything can kind of define people for the American way, it, it's perhaps the insistence that how one votes says very little about one's religion, spirituality, belief, however you want to couch it. Um, and so for him, Lear was really upset when conservative activists in the 70s started creating these means of evaluating politicians based on how they responded to particular social issues. So how you voted on abortion, how you voted on, uh, say, whatever was happening with the Equal Rights Amendment, that you would be graded based on that. And then you would that grade would be then give it out to um, citizens to help them understand what type of candidate you were. So people was formed in a lot of ways as interfaith, as you're saying, uh, to combat this type of insidious influence on on public life, uh, at least for Lear. And it's interfaith because it includes uh, someone like Norman Lear, but then it also includes someone like Martin Marty, and then uh, Theodore Hesburgh, who was a fairly well-known Catholic, sort of um, figure of the religious left uh, at Notre Dame at the time. And Lear's also taking advantage of uh, university deans, Um, professors, so people from Yale Divinity School get tapped to be part of People for the American Way. Um, So it's certainly ongoing today, uh, still doing work, still making literature, um, still going over their archives and still moving things around, which is sort of exciting for me just because it is still in sort of formation and they're still putting things together. But in many ways it was formed to combat this type of influence on the public sphere that Lear saw as, as detrimental to Uh, the First Amendment, and it also decided to uh, put on a variety show to try and rally the proverbial troops following Reagan's victory and ascent to try and figure out what progressive politics or what progressive patriotism could even be about. And so I talk about People for the American Way as a third sector of American public life, pulling on Robert Withnow and some sociological writings uh, because you have people which is going at the moral majority, which is being formed alongside the Christian voice. So you have all these different entities forming at the same time, and people is one of those. And I know that some have talked about interfaith activism on the right with Mormons, Protestants, Catholics. Uh, there's also, you know, certainly on the left as well with this organization.
0: Well, it, you know, it's it's really interesting. in. You mentioned the variety show, right? That's the ABC Mm -hmm. variety show, I Love Liberty. Mm -hmm. And you you focus on this in your last chapter. And it's interesting. I've never heard of this show, let alone watched it. Um, So I was really curious about your analysis of of what's going on with this program. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about what the show was like? What would they have seen Mm -hmm. if they tuned into an episode? And Mm -hmm. then how did it fit into Lear's broader agenda? You've spoken a bit to the latter of that, but I'd love to hear more.
1: Yeah, sure. So it was a, it's a culminating, (coughs) excuse me, excuse me. It's a, um, it's a culminating moment uh, for the book. It's a culminating moment, I think, uh, for good and for ill, I think for something called the religious left, you know, certainly for Norman Lear, but it's basically just your run of the mill variety show. Um, If you're a fan of something like SNL or Saturday Night Live, uh, it's very much like that. It's very much like um, any number of programs today that or in the last 10, 15 years that use satire and performance and entertainment to make a point about politics. So whether it's the Colbert Report or the Daily Show or um, SNL or Real Time with Bill Maher or something, uh, it's kind of similar, but for more technical reasons or definitional reasons, it's more of a variety show. So you have singing, you have dancing, uh, you have uh, little, not soliloquies per se, but little kind of performances. You have pieces read out loud. uh, And it was a... It was a uh, celebrity-filled event uh, to be, um, at the very least. Uh, And so what you would have seen was, or was um, Robin Williams did some stand-up. So he dressed as an American flag, and he did some stand-up, which was amazing. You would see Gregory Hines do a dance number. You would see uh, Mary Tyler Moore say something about um, maybe the importance of politics or voting or something at the time. The show was couched as being bipartisan. So that was on purpose because the network, which was ABC, was a little bit nervous that they didn't want to be seen as really uh, sort of encouraging or de facto condoning a particular political position. Uh, And that's that gray area that Lear always tends to navigate very well, whether it's the public interest, the idea, or what it means to be bipartisan. So what you actually see is in the show the notion of being bipartisan is that they had John Wayne uh, record a short piece where he talks about his relationship with Jane Fonda at the time and and how they don't really like each other, but they can still respect each other and still have a conversation. And And someone like Barry Goldwater is included in the variety show, but he's just a gigantic punchline in many ways. You don't actually learn about who he is. Yeah, and it's a it's a pattern of what progressive sort of cultural productions tend to do to conservative actors and figures. So, you know, if anyone's ever seen Parks and Recreation at all, you just think of Ron Swanson and the level of kind of, not ridicule, but the level of tongue-in-cheek that goes along with his libertarian sensibilities. You know, ultimately Amy Poehler is going to win out. The sort of progressive liberal vision is going to trump the kind of libertarian advice of Swanson. And that's seen in the variety show with Goldwater who comes out to just tell a punchline essentially to a gigantic uh, patriotic kind of uh, moment. But in many ways, to be maybe more particular, uh, the show can be understood as an attempt of a form of progressive patriotism uh, we have any countless books coming out now on religious nationalism. Um, this country's being taken over. It's being taken back, all these different things. But never has a progressive, I don't know, never. I mean, there's certainly been times I shouldn't maybe necessarily say that. But as far as what does progressive patriotism even look like? And what does it sound like? And how is it executed? So in many ways, and you know, people are still asking that sort of um, today. And so Lear took that challenge up, uh, and he decided to reach out to people like Jim Henson, Um, So he has this great conversation between Big Bird and Martin Sheen, and they're talking about the nature of politics and how it's convoluted. And there's a lot of debate and discussion, you know, over and against the uniformity of the Christian nation narrative that's coming from the other side of the aisle. Um, So they're, they're emphasizing, they're, you know, they're emphasizing discord. Um, So they actually reenact the Continental Congress with the Muppets, Uh, Miss Piggy, Kermit, everyone's involved and it's, it's sticky and tongue in cheek and, it's all in the sort of guise or message of, you know, teaching those watching how to be better Americans in many ways. And so you would had a sketch with Christopher Reeve, and he plays a pastor, and he gets into an argument with Walter Matthau, who plays a very abrasive um, kind of colonial figure of the American colonial past. And they have this argument about religious freedom. And, and Judd Hirsch is in a sketch that that he's talking about liberty and the spirit of liberty and a pendulum, a pendulum of liberty, with one of the thickest Eastern European sort of Jewish accents that you can possibly imagine. Um, and then, lastly, it speaks to sort of um, so, so some of the shortcomings of liberal progressive sort of activism or mobilization when it focuses on race or diversity. It has this sketch of sort of angry minorities, whether it's angry angry black or an angry Indian or an angry woman or an angry Hispanic or something like that. And you had this white person in the middle, which was like Archie. And what he would say is, you know, these people are complaining, but all they're doing is depreciating my property value when they move into my neighborhood. So Lear's trying to do what he did on, on The Family in a different uh, genre, which is the variety show with some comedy and some fun. But at the same time, remind people of what People for the American Way is about while remaining bipartisan. So it's quite a balancing act, as you can tell.
0: <laughs> uh, definitely. Uh, did
1: people like it? It was kind of mixed. Uh, you know, some at the time called out the seeming hypocrisy, uh, some of them found out that ABC had even helped produce some of the variety show with, I think, tens of millions of dollars. Um, So it really was, you know, not unlike many things today, it sort of broke down the middle in many ways. I think people were either annoyed at it's apparent bipartisanship, but really at the same time, it's kind of subtle progressive arguments about um, a better America, Um, you know, an America that, because, you know, as you remember, Make America Great Again was invented to make Reagan possible, you know, not someone like Trump. Um, So Lear's variety show in a way is an attempt to combat that, sort of vision. And it kind of depended on, on who you asked. And some saw through it. And some saw it as a sort of achievement of progressive sort of outreach and communication with broader audiences.
0: How long was it on the air? And how did it go off air? Did they stop making it? Was it well, lack of audience? What happened?
1: It was just a, it was just a single night. It's just a variety show. So it was just a one-time thing.
0: Oh, oh okay. I'm sorry. I was thinking it was an ongoing series. Oh, no. No, just a one time,
1: just a like a extravaganza, just like a night of celebration, a night of, hmm. you know, celebrities, Hollywood, glitz and glamour, song, singing. So yeah, it was just a it was just a special night.
0: Okay. Oh, interesting. Well, so in addition to focusing in on, on Lear, his programming and sort of the cultural context of that, one of the things you do in your conclusion is you step back a little farther from the object of the study to to what sort of an intervention you're hoping this study does. And mm-hmm. so in your conclusion, and I'll quote you here for a second, it, you write that the study of American religion currently sits at an analytical crossroads. And I wondered, c- could you tell us a bit about that crossroads and how you hope your work moves the discipline in new or different directions?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I uh, think that that comes out of some wrestling I was doing in I my program and my di- in my dissertation defense, trying to sort of figure out where the field was going, um, what I was reading at the time. So, so to me, um, my time um, at Yale, I was able to take courses with um, someone like Catherine Lofton and and courses with her and others at Yale, Tisa Wanger, Harry Stout. Uh, it was a wonderful blend of of different generations of scholarship. Um, so I even had a a class that was co-taught by Lofton and Harry Stout on American religious history. Uh, And I kind of saw how the generations were related to one another, methodologically speaking, uh, theoretically speaking. And so for me, um, the analytical crossroad has a lot to do with, I think, what the field's trying or trying to figure out right now is I think for some time we've had a lot of uh, scholars come out of history departments and have their own kind of understanding of what American religion is, what it looks like, how you talk about it. A number of scholars recently, in at least maybe five years or so, have coined um, a turn of phrase, American religious studies, um, as something that they're trying to push the field in a somewhat different direction. Uh, for those who have, you know, this isn't the first rodeo, you know, perhaps these suggestions are nothing new. Um, you know, they're certainly theoretically driven, they're th- certainly experimental in, in what is an archive, um, what is a proper subject of the study of religion. And so that's what I was really taken by and taken with um, at my time at Yale and and reading a work on someone like Oprah Winfrey and how someone like Oprah can stand in or function as a as a um, sort of a figure of a moment. And so I tried to do something uh, through Lear. And so the book hopes to you know, push the idea of what's an archive, uh, what's a primary source, what's a source of historical investigation, uh, who is a source of religious history in many ways. Um, I think, you know, if you look at books today on the religious left that are coming out, uh, this is going to be somewhat unusual. This book will be somewhat unusual in that it's not necessarily about a pastor. It's not necessarily about a priest or a rabbi or something like that. Uh, a lot of books, you know, have that particular focus. This one doesn't necessarily have that focus. And in addition to being a history, even though I didn't envision writing necessarily a Rise and Fall, um, this b- book is also interdisciplinary. And this book is also not only is a historical, uh, but it also has some cultural and social criticism in it as well. Uh, And people like scholars like Jason Bivens have been very inspiring in that sense, uh, motivating in that sense. His book, Religion of Fear, uh, does something very similar, has a prescriptive sort of conclusion at the end, uh, perhaps even diagnoses what's happening today in our public life. Um, So if anything, the book is pushing at maybe more um, sort of traditional forms of scholarship, traditional forms of voice, Uh, traditional forms of maybe history uh, because i certainly identify as a historian identify as a scholar of religion um, certainly political theorist um, at the end of the day someone of of an interdisciplinary training Um, and so the crossroads has something to do with how is the field going to incorporate this push to be more um, aware of conditions the conditions that make things possible versus just sort of assuming things exist in their own sake and for their own sake. Some of these conversations have been ongoing. Um, Some of them maybe are iterations of things in the past. Uh, I think right now though, or at least for what this book is trying to do, is to try and say that we can, that this particular topic, say with the religious left or the culture wars, needs a particular type of approach. Um, And that approach is interdisciplinary. It's aware of historical improvisation and of individual improvisation, but then it's also aware of social constraint and cultural constraint as well. So that's what I'm hoping to sort of bring to the table here is a a passionate voice uh, that's grounded in literature and historiography and scholarship, but then also has an eye to the future and has an eye to addressing present circumstances as well.
0: Well, and there's so much interesting stuff going on in this book in in terms of the sources, in terms of the analysis, the topics you cover. Mm. I I wonder if you were to just zero in, uh, if there were one thing, if if the readers only took home one thing from this book, what would you want it to be?
1: Mm. I would say that, uh, at least so far, as far as talking to people and getting a sense of reception, that uh, even though I maybe didn't necessarily intend to write a story of sort of a rise and a fall, uh, perhaps what led to a dropping off? Um, p- perhaps what, do I, what led to that, or what sorts of things maybe contributed to it, or does that make any actual sense? So if, I'm, if I want anything to come out of it, maybe a need for a little more self-reflection, a need for a little more uh, investigation of these past traditions of progressive activism, um, an attempt to try and speak to a um, maybe a party or maybe a movement that's trying to find itself. Uh, so, if we're going to take maybe anything away from this, realize that uh, Lear is certainly indicative of a lot of things. Uh, he's indicative of things that have in the, are in the past and certainly carried into the present. Uh, but also, you know, what can we do by learning from him? Uh, What can we do with the insights, with some of the strengths and some of the weaknesses that are presented in the text? And how can they contribute uh, perhaps to a strengthened sort of vision of how to communicate with one another uh, or to how to maybe accept some level of accountability for the fact that the New York Times can write an an article that says religious liberals have been uh, sort of exercised from the public square for the last 50 years and now they want back in the game. It's an incredibly provocative title. It's never left my mind for too many moments. And so to me, how, how is that narrative, where does that narrative come from? And to what extent can we learn something about that, you know, through this book?
0: Well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure talking with you today. And before I let you go, what do you think your next project will be?
1: So my next project is going to look at a similar time period But just on the other side, kind of of the aisle. So I'm thinking of a project that looks at the ways in which conservative or consultants for the Republican Party, which who had conservative um, sort of investments and goals in mind, how consultants come in during the 70s and help remap, remake, re yeah remake the Republican Party and American conservatism, kind of writ large. Uh, And so it'll be a similar time period, but I'm going to look at either a group of individuals, or maybe a particular type of practice that helped uh, conservatives bring people together in new ways. So instead of just kind of accepting this idea of a rise of the Christian right, or the rise of the religious right, or this kind of reactionary rise analysis, I want to take a look at the means, the apparatuses, the tools, the methods, the theories that conservatives of a certain type used in the 70s to help almost for for one scholar uh, to exercise the moderate aspects of the party out of itself. So that by the time we get to the tea party, it actually kind of makes sense that we have this kind of trajectory that we do. And so I want to look at how that happened, how the party almost sort of purifies itself uh, and what means it uses to do that and how religion came into that.
0: Well, that sounds fascinating. And hopefully when it's out, you can come back and we can talk about that book as well.
1: Absolutely. I'd love to do uh, that again. Yeah, thank you.
0: Great. Thank you very much. I'm Carrie Lane, a host of New Books in American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. You've been listening to my interview with L. Benjamin Ralski, author of The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left Politics, Television, and Popular Culture in the 1970s and Beyond.